0: let get started. Uh, we should begin in prayer. In name Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father. and our your hand real high so we know who came in late <laughs> <laughs> marked or maybe it's not keep your hand up high here I'll take you to tonight we're gonna to talk about the subject of confession or Penance or reconciliation, all that, whatever term you want to use. But the issue isn't really confession or reconciliation. The issue is to a priest, or does the priest fit in there, right? And this is oftentimes one of those hot-button topics that uh, confuse or frustrate dialogue between Catholics and our separated brethren out there. Who love Jesus, who know the Word of God, and oftentimes to our shame... than than we so um, why do Catholics confess their sins to a priest? What's going on? Well according to the popular belief that's out there you you know, you ask your Baptist friend at work or uh, the Jehovah's Witness knocking on the door on Saturday morning if you ask them what do you believe about the Catholics and the priests and confession where does that all come from? More often than not, you'll get the answer that this was something that the Roman Catholic Church cooked up somewhere around the Middle Ages or something. If they know their stuff, they might give you a day the the Lateran council or something. And the Roman Church came up with this in the Middle Ages. This is one of those late doctrines like transubstantiation, the Council of Trent. This thing's invented very late. It's not true, but that's the argument often as you hear. So there's a historical component to it. You have to understand that. But more importantly, and related to it, is the biblical component to the argument. And, that that, and furthermore, the Bible says you shouldn't be doing this. Right? As we saw last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 20, and we saw that someone stood up, unfortunately, and my guinea pig recited the, the Ten Commandments for us, and they sounded different from what we found in the Bible, right? There was a the mystery of the missing commandment. So let's look there, uh, let's look at the scripture for a second just begin to see what is the issue here, and we'll talk about those uh, the broader sense of the, the topic. So turn with me to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. Let me ask you Bible. First 1 Timothy 2.5. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on with your neighbor, or you can just look at the handout, but i prefer you open your Bible. 1 Timothy 2.5, it's in the New Testament. That's a joke. Alright, 1 Timothy 2.5, everybody there? Having some trouble, you can look on with your neighbor. There's definitely a couple Catholics in the room. Timothy, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 Timothy 2.5. You find Thessalonians? Keep going. Alright, 1 Timothy 2.5, you have found by now, you can give up. For okay. look at verse 5 with me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. For there is one mediator. Can I hear an amen? Do you believe that? You don't have to do that. I'm just kidding. But do you believe that? Do you believe there's one mediator between God and men? The man Christ Jesus? Yes. yes. One mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. One God and men? Do you believe that? No? Somebody said no? Okay. Who the hell are the priests? And what are the priests doing here? Well, we're not talking about that right now. Yeah, you have to excuse my artistic skills here. Okay, we've got God. Right? It's a very simple picture. God put up in the clouds up there. Right? God's up in the clouds, he's up in heaven. Timothy 2 and 5. Okay. We'll keep it simple. This is man in general, right? This is man and woman. I don't want to get confused. i draw men and Just humanity. All right. He's green. He's down here on the earth, right? Up, up there on earth. Blue. Okay. Now, what's the picture here? This is man, right? Any woman? And then who's in between? Jesus. Jesus is in between. Red. The blood of Jesus is what makes this all happen. Jesus. Okay? There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Why? Because He's God and man. man. Perfect. Right? Yeah, he's, he's the man. perfect mediator. Yes. He's not a divine person from all eternity, but he has a divine nature from all eternity, eternity and also a human nature he takes on at the moment of the incarnation. So he's the perfect mediator between God and man because he has both natures bound together, united in that divine person. You can't get a better mediator What about the priest where they fit in there? Well, I don't know. You tell me. You Catholics have a really confusing diagram. I mean, it's very simple the way Paul laid it out for us, huh? God, man, Jesus, the God man. You guys make it so complicated to put your medieval incrustations on this very simple and beautiful diagram, right? You got the priest out here. Right? So you, you go over here, and then somehow the priest goes to Jesus, or sometimes the priest might just go to God for you, right? Because Jesus seems be stern. But then that's not it. That's not all there is to it, right? We we'll just, we'll just paint for Mary. Right? We've got Mary and all the saints out here. There's a, a horrible joke. I don't know if I talked about it last time. did Horrible joke you hear. Sometimes we even heard it from the pulpits. It's kind of funny because you know, I'm sure all of you have heard it. Jesus is walking around in heaven, right? And he's looking around. And he sees a guy over there. He's not dressed right, he's not in his Sunday best. So, walking along, it's strange. See another guy over there in the crowd. guy's not dressed right not wearing the baptismal garment. These are God. Where are these guys? How are these guys getting in here? To the wedding piece? How are they getting into heaven? They're not supposed to be here. Who are these guys? Sinners in heaven. So as he walks around, he more he's getting confused. That's it. He walks out over to the front of pearly gates and he confronts Peter. He says, Peter, I gave you one very simple job. I gave you these keys. Give them to me. Show me keys. Here they are, Lord. Pulls them out. I gave you these keys, Peter. Do one simple job. You're gonna guard this game. And you let the good people in, and the bad people don't get in. It. Right? It's a very simple job. In, out. That's it. Yes, Lord, yes, yes. What's the, what's the what are you so excited about? Well, I just was walking around. i tell you what I'm all excited about. I was walking around heaven just now. I said, all these people are not supposed to be here getting in. You're not doing your job," he says. "Lord, oh, I was going to talk to you about this. I'm doing my job. It's a very simple job. The key, like you said, but your mother's at the back door and she keeps letting them in." They grab their rosary beads. What is wrong with that image? What a horrible vision of the kingdom of God. And Mary's role, Peter, the whole thing. Very bizarre. Peter's not standing at the pearly gates. It's a misunderstanding in Matthew 16. But you've got Mary. right? Sometimes you go to Mary. Why? Well, Jesus, he's a little too rough. Gets mad, so you go to Mary's mother, it's mom. You can deal with her, and she'll talk to God, or maybe she'll talk to Jesus. Talk to your son for me, you know. And there's tons of variations on that show. Of this idea of Mary being this alternate room Well, who else do we got? We got the priest, we got Mary, but it isn't in there. You've got all the saints. Not a whole lot in this room, but ordinarily, if you've got a good nice Catholic room or a nice Catholic household, you got saint statues all over the place, right? People light candles in front of them and stuff. We talked about that name issue last name time, name. right? Saints, angels, angels. Oh, wow, angels, right? So, and the angels, though they, they don't go to Jesus; they just go straight to God. They're, you know, Michael the angel is heart playing to God, so they just go straight to What else you got? Going. The sacraments. We can go on and on, right? Even sacraments. Let's see. So what's the problem? Let's read that verse again. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, only one. The circle around. Them. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay. Okay. Getting warm? Better. No, I'm just kidding. It is getting warm here. But what's going on? I mean, this is Paul. Yeah. You know, oh, what all the original <laughs> four? Yeah, we got the four Gospels. <laughs> I mean, at least the Christ. Gospels seem like they're, they're very good. Right. That's where we originated. Simon, Paul. I know Paul. You know sometimes I like to just throw Paul out because I mean he causes problems for us Catholics. God forbid! You're not going to find a more pious ros- rosary bead thumbed Catholic than this one. But you got to understand, it. a rosary But you got to understand what he's doing, what he's talking about. But you have to understand the context, and oftentimes. Get that idea that, well, we've got the Gospels of Jesus, but the Protestants, they got Paul, right? He's on their side. Well, well, we, you know, Jesus is bigger than Paul, so we're okay. <laughs> I was talking to a Seventh day Adventist once who actually told me he disagreed with Paul, flat out. Colossians chapter 2 the Sabbath is a shadow of the past, just a shadow of the things that were to come in Christ. He said, well, that's it. I don't believe it. I said, what do you, mean you don't believe it? That's out of bounds. We're in a debate here. You can't go out and Paul says it. And so, you know, it's part of the parameters working." Well, I disagree. He disagrees with what Moses said in the Ten Commandments. He disagrees with God. I disagree with Paul. <laughs> I had a seminarian sitting there with, at the debate with me. And he, this Catholic seminarian, his jaw hit the ground. He couldn't believe it. Because he said, this is a, not, you don't hear it a whole lot, but among the seven day events, Paul doesn't believe it got kind of a second-class canon. He's good. That's something messed up. All right. But that is not the Catholic position. It's not the Christian understanding of Paul's writings. If you'd read Paul's writings, you'd find you would understand your Catholic faith in so much more fullness. It's, going, it's from like going from a sniffing a plastic rose to walking out the rose garden. So, what's going on here? Remember, there's two components to the argument. Let's deal with the historical issue first. And that is, the Roman Catholic Church invented confession to a priest, sacramental confession to a priest, in the Middle Ages. Along with all the other things they were doing in the Middle Ages, right? you got the the Transubstantiation Council of Trent, after the Protestant Reformation, all that stuff. Yeah, but we didn't invent that said to the apostles, who sins you shall forgive they are forgiven you, sins you shall in your retain." Amen, them. sister. And they were, the, they were the very first priests, or whatever. That's so, right. You just... So he gave them. What about Paul? You got to deal with Paul. You can't... Okay, so now? <laughs> I guess maybe it's John, Okay, it. so the Catholics have John, the Gospel of John, and now the prophets have Paul. So, what's going on here? It's exactly what we did in Exodus chapter 20. I wanted you to feel the issue, right? Some of you are awake now. Some of you are sleeping or sipping your wine now. Hopefully, some of you are awake. Okay, so what's going on here? If you look on the first side of the page, there we'll deal the historical issue first. On the streets of Victoria. So the majority of the cross denominations that teach the confessional priest is unbiblical based on the following verse. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that the practice was instituted by the Roman Catholic Church at the Lateran Council 4 in 1215. <clears throat> you can see this in Lorraine Bentner's book, Roman Catholicism, page 8. Horrible book. Page 8. <laughs> Horrible book. But... The proposition is unhistorical and unbiblical. That is, the position that says that this was invented at a certain point in history in 1215, and that the Bible says that you should not be doing this. That argument is itself unhistorical and unbiblical, and we'll talk about that. So, unhistorical, 1215, Fourth Lateran Council. All right. Everyone, let's turn yeah. our cell phones off. Yeah. Okay. Everyone together. Put our mind on. Sometimes I hear one go off in church. Where's oh, mine? Yeah. Make sure you turn it off. Oh, thank God that wasn't me. So your cell phones off. Okay, so 1215. Let's think about this now. When's Paul? All right. let's, let's anchor it down a little bit. When's Jesus? 30, 30, 30, 30, 33, so okay, alright, now we're getting there. So Paul is a contemporary of Jesus. Paul lives, he was born before before Jesus died on the cross. He may have known of him in Jerusalem. He was a good rabbi in the era. He probably heard of him. I don't know if you encountered him. But he did begin persecuting Christians almost immediately after the death of, of our Lord. Led the charge in Jerusalem. So, Paul died somewhere in the early 60s. I'm not talking about the era of the Beatles here, right? In the early 60s, same century, okay? Alright, we're talking about 60 AD. Alright? Now, the council, of, of, the fourth Latter Council was in 1215. So let's round our numbers up here. A thousand years later, okay? So the argument is that a thousand years after our Lord, after Paul, the early church, the Roman Catholic Church invented this. Now, all you have to do is check history. It's very easy. So, if it is true that the Roman Catholic Church invented in 1215, there would be a number of historical details that would make that crystal clear. For example, churches that had broken from communion with Rome, long before that, would not have this thing. It was invented in 1215. Right? Okay. So now it's true that the Fourth Latter Council, the Roman Catholic Church, did make a declaration regarding confession a priests. That's a whole other issue. But the historical argument that this was invented in 1215 is contrary to fact. Here's some evidence for it. First of all, you can look at the Nestorian churches. We have some here in the Washington, D.C. area. The Nestorian churches, some of the Assyrian churches. These are churches that go all the way back to apostolic times. They trace their roots to Antioch, the city of Antioch. As you know, many of you know, that my brother and I, Edmund, we were Melkites from that same church, the church of Antioch. Well, in the church of Antioch, there was a schism. After 431, there was a council of Ephesus, And the church of Antioch broke, broke apart. And some of it remained uh, out of union with Rome and Constantinople and the rest of them since that period, 431. They're still around today. Guess what? You go in their church, and you walk up to someone and you say, what do you do when you commit a sin? Do you confess your sins? Do you go straight to Jesus? Or what do you do? Or do you go to to the priest? We go to the priest. Why? Well, because the Roman Catholic Church told us to. A thousand years after we broke from them. No, right? so, or you go to the Coptic church there's a Coptic cathedral St. Mark's on Braddock Road beautiful church you ever want to see what a church should look like go take a look at that thing gorgeous Here church. this is on Braddock Road St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Church out of union with Rome and Constantinople since 451 you want to see some people that are serious about confession to a priest, they make Roman Catholics look okay, like a bunch of Protestants. Okay? Among the Orthodox, 1054, another 1054, the churches of Constantinople, this is the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, 1054 was still before 1215. If you go over to Washington, D.C. and you go to St. John's Russian Orthodox Church, you'll find that people do not receive communion unless they've gone to confession. And that has nothing to do with whether or not they committed some sort of grave sin. They're so serious about this sacrament that they do not receive communion unless they have immediately, the evening before, on Saturday at Bessbridge, gone to confession. Why? Well, because a hundred years after they broke from Rome, Rome came out with a document they said, hey, we we like that document but we'll we'll still call you heretics. No! If you look (laughs) at History, you'll find that all of these churches that have been out of communion historically with Rome long before 1215 have these exact same beliefs. The Portuguese encountered some of these when they went to India to evangelize, of course, to India to conquer the land. When, Portu- when Portugal was out um, building its empire, you all know the history books. Well, on the boat, we're not only Portuguese soldiers, but also missionaries. They figure, we're going to the land of the Hindus and the pagans. We've got to teach these people about Jesus. Just as they did when they came uh, to, the, to the Americas with, the, with the, uh, the Spanish Empire. Well, they got off the boat and they found a bunch of Christians greeting them there. They said, well, how did you guys get here? Where did you come from? They said, what do you mean where we come from? We've been here all along. Well, who taught you the faith? How did you learn the faith? said, Thomas. Okay? 1,500 years later, when they encounter foreign Christians never seen them before, and they ask them, who taught you?" The Apostle Thomas came here a long time ago and told us about Jesus. Well, you'd be very surprised. Well, you wouldn't be surprised, but you're surprised to these questions. We'd be very surprised to find out what they found. Of the full rant of sacraments, Marian devotions. People kissing statues the whole bit. Okay? The Portuguese didn't know what to do with these guys. I said, well, maybe I'll use Latin. Maybe that'll fix it. Don't but they know who these people were. How could they? So that if you look at the history, you look at the churches, and these churches are still here today in the Washington, DC area. You can go visit some of these churches. I but furthermore, I think- yes regards to these people receiving communion but receiving confession first but well, mm-hmm. how could they possibly do that if everyone went to mass every morning and they received communion in the Eastern churches the normal practice in the parish is that there is only uh uh a divine liturgy on Sunday ordinarily except for major feast days. And that's a whole other issue. It has to do with the married priesthood and things like that. Thank you. So um but that that is a good point. Alright, so what are some other other evidence, though, historically? Well, the Didache. The Didache, as far as we know, was written sometime around AD 70. This is before John's Gospel was even written. The Didache, this is the short form of the title, The Teaching of the Apostles. Didache. Confess your sins in church and do not go up to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. On the Lord's day, gather together, break bread, give thanks, and confessing your transgressions, so that your sacrifice may be pure. What do they talk about? How do you confess your sins? The letter of Barnabas, also very early, 74 AD. You shall judge righteously, you shall not make a schism, but you shall pacify those that contend by bringing them together. You shall confess your sins, you shall not go to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of light. I'm only giving you a smattering of the earliest and most important the names you would recognize here. Hippolytus, the bishop, the bishop conducting the ordination of the new bishop shall pray. God, and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is for the ordination of a priest. He's given that to you the directions of how it was done in his period. God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, pour forth now that power which comes from you, from your royal spirit which you gave to your beloved son, Jesus Christ, which you bestowed upon his, his holy apostles, and grant this your servant whom you have chosen for the episcopate, the power to feed your holy flock and to serve them without blame as your high priest, ministering night and day to propitiate unceasingly before your face to offer to you the gifts of your holy church and by the spirit of the high priesthood have the authority to forgive sins in accord with your command. What command is he talking about? We'll see. That's what we talked about already in John's Gospel. Basil the Great, it is necessary to confess our sins to those to whom the dispensation of God's mysteries or sacraments in the Western language is entrusted. Those doing penance of old are found to have done it before the saints. It is written, he's talking about it in the Old Testament, it is written in the Gospel, they confess their sins to John the Baptist, but in Acts 19, they confess to the Apostles, where John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old of the old Era, the Old Covenant. John Chrysostom. Priests have received a power which God has given neither to angels nor to archangels. It was said to them, Whatsoever ye shall bind in earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed. Temporal rulers have indeed the power to, to binding, but they can only bind the body. Priests, in contrast, can bind with a bond which pertains to the soul itself and transcends the very heavens. Did God not give them all the powers of heaven? "...whose sins you shall forgive," he says, "...they are forgiven, them whose sins you shall retain, they are retained." Again, that reference from John that we'll talk about. "...what greater power is there than this? The Father has given all judgment to the Son, and now I see the Son placing all His power in the hands of men." So he's quoting from scripture again. "...they are raised to this dignity as if they were already gathered up to heaven." On the priesthood. And I could go on and on. So you can see from historical evidence, and again, I'm not trying to make a historical argument to prove to you anything at this stage. Simply, though, that the argument of 12, 15, that, that 1215, the first Latin Council, was the invention of the concept of confession of, of reconciling to confessional priests. You have evidence throughout the Christian world, not in union with Rome, for hundreds of years, for centuries before this, uh, this era. You have, you have evidence of it in the early church writings. If you present this information to your friend who's asking you about this, they'll say, fine. Because we know that even in Paul's time, he said that wolves were coming among the flocks in Corinth and other places. John, in his first epistle, says, speaking to his congregation in Asia Minor, says that the Antichrist is coming, and many antichrists have already come. So things were bad even by the time of John. 80, 90. Right. So then, sure, of course the Didache and Barnabas, Apollotus, Basil the Great, John Chris, they're all heretics. That's why they're saying this stuff. Well, remember what the issue is, though. It's a historical and a, history, a scriptural. There is a point in time when someone says, this is when it happened. And you can now see from this evidence, and there are books written on this stuff. But that is not true. It has nothing to do with history. It's an ahistorical argument. It has nothing to do with history. What did happen in 1215, what were they saying about the resurrection? Can we take it too far afield? But it's oh. a declaration on the priesthood for the Roman Catholic Church, and some regulations on it. Oh, okay. But again, it's, oh, okay. It's, we take us way too far afield to get into the details of it. Oh. But the point here, remember what the point here is, is that in 1215, this is when it was instituted, but you can see evidence to how in churches that have been out of unity before 1215, and in writings of the church earlier than. Fine, but the Bible says right. And there's two parts of this argument, and as soon as you destroy the historical argument, and you show that history says the exact opposite, well, then of course your friend, who loves the Bible and loves Jesus, and probably more than you, will then show you in the Bible. Where they believe it contradicts the practice. Right? This tradition of men. And they'll journey to 1 Timothy 2 5. Any converts in the room? Anybody has crossed the background at all? How many you have memorized this verse in Sunday school? Anyone? No? That's why you <laughs> Well, yeah, that's why you converted. You didn't know any better. If you had known this verse, you never would have converted. <laughs> all right, so 1 Timothy 2.5, this is a classic memory verse. 2 uh, uh, Timothy 3.16 and 17, the soul scripture All 1 Timothy 2.5, all these things, you have to turn These are But these are memory verses. And memory verses are okay, they're good. Would the Catholics would memorize verses out of the Bible. What a tragedy, right? Little kids are memorizing glory and praise hymns. They're here today and will be gone tomorrow, right? But the Word of God is here forever. I anyway, on that. So memorization, memory verses, good thing. But sometimes these verses are taken out of context and then misunderstood out of context. And so you have this poor kid who memorized a verse in Sunday school, or heard this preach from the pulpit, and he goes out and he says, Well, here it's 1 Timothy 2.5. It says there's one mere good God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all. I was a Protestant. But. Okay. So then, what's going on here? Well, it's not the decay St. John Chrysostom and the Council. The uh, Fourth Council versus Paul, but the problem is, is this, it's this diagram that I drew here for you versus Paul. This is the most anti-Pauline diagram on the face of the earth. This has nothing to do with what Paul's saying. Okay, the way I've laid it out for you. But unfortunately, this is that argument, or this is what you heard in that joke that I told you. Now. Oh yeah, I kind of think that way too. Yeah, Mary, she's nice. Yeah. well, <laughs> well Okay, so what's going on? Let's look at it in context. Context, context, context. If someone ever says something about the Bible to you, or about any piece of literature, and says it says this or that, read it in context. And what you will find more often than not, unfortunately, is that this memory verse that, you could, that you've heard someone was listening earlier. Oh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> This memory verse. To turn it off. This memory verse is taken out of the middle of a paragraph. Romans three twenty eight. Another classic example of this. If you read the verse before the verse after. you like, Whoa, we'll get something else. Okay, so what's going on here? Let's look at the context. Verse one. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. In which are we in the same uh, Yes, 1 First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Over oh, okay. there? 1 yes. Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. It's on the handout too. Yes. But for free, Open your Bible. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for yourself. So yours says, someone mine says, for all men. Who's he talking to? His friend Timothy. And he's urging Timothy in this letter for his whole congregation to be involved in praying, interceding, giving thanksgiving for all men. And okay. so what are we talking about? Are we talking about this? Acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. For there is one meeting between God and the man and Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What's Paul talking about? Is Paul preaching against the Fourth Lateran Council a thousand years later? Obviously not. Paul's writing a letter to his friend Timothy, his disciple, who he's placed as a bishop in Ephesus, and he's writing this in his next letter to Timothy, to make sure that Timothy governs the church in Ephesus well as a bishop. He's a lot of the advice. What's he saying? He's saying Paul, Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy and the congregation of Ephesus and all the church for that regard need to pray for all men. You need to pray for me, Paul. I haven't finished the race yet. You need to pray for everyone who is in high position, especially because we are going to be in the most dangerous position. We're going to be the most demanded of by God in our, in our surroundings. So those are our positions, especially to be for. What are we talking about? Well, what you're hearing here is not a schizophrenic Paul who says one thing, I want you to pray and give mediation and all this stuff and then says there's one mediator. But you're hearing Paul, a heart of Paul's theology. If you flip, hold your hand and flip over to Acts chapter 9. Most of you know the story. And you'll see where Paul gets this wacky idea. Paul, as we talked about, is heading to... He's one of the earliest major persecutors of the Christians. He stood and watched Stephen die. All right? While they laid the feet, their cloaks at his feet. While they went off the stone Stephen. That's, that is to say, Paul is overseeing the persecution. He's intimately involved then, hasn't had enough with Stephen, Stephen's dead, he shoots off to Damascus up north with soldiers to go out there and capture the Christians in Damascus. He's heard that this Christian movement is broken out in the synagogue in Damascus. So he goes headed up there to see if he can stamp it out fast. Damascus is a major city. If it gets loose out there, it could spread throughout the Gentile world. And then it's out of their hands. So he goes up with letters from Jerusalem, from the high priesthood, with authority in the synagogue to take anyone who accepts Jesus as the Messiah, to take back and chase And so, he's on the road to Damascus. And, verse 3, now as he journeyed and approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed about and He fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, oh Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Paul, these the same individuals. Why do you persecute me? Yes. Acts chapter 9. nine. What verse? Do you want? What verse Three. Look but, with on with your name. If you yeah. can't find yeah. it. Okay. okay. Why do you persecute? Stephen, is that certain? Why do you persecute the Christians? in the asking, why do you persecute me? He says, Lord, what are you talking about? a light? What are you talking about? Who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. Whom do you persecute me? So Paul is blinded from that moment on. He's led to Damascus in complete blindness. And Ananias is called. Well, Ananias is one of the Christian, one of the Jewish Christians there in Damascus. And God says to Ananias in a dream, Ananias, I want you to go to Paul. Saul, he's come to Damascus. He's blind right now. And I want you to pray over him and baptize him. And Ananias says, Lord, are you crazy? <laughs> this is in verse 11. And the Lord said, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire the house of Jews for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has sent a man named Ananias to come and lay his hands on him. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done by the, to the saints of Jerusalem, the Christian Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right? Lord, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom are persecuting. Jesus has shown him how much he will have to suffer for that name he heard on the road to Damascus. And from then on, all of Paul's literature, all everything Paul does, is saturated with this image in his mind and that mode of conversion. And so Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 5. Jesus is the head. The church is its body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 he says, but we're not all equal members just as you have hands and feet and eyes and ears and a body. So in the body of Christ and the church you have different members who have different functions. Apostles, preachers, evangelists. Just like the eyes and the hands, the feet and the ears. Having different functions but all intimately united and necessary. Being knit together and the blood of Jesus and the Spirit flowing through the church. Says that Ephesians four as well. So this, you see this. This is an image you've heard probably, you know, in the readings in the church. This is where it's coming from. The origin to starts to here for Paul. It's an image from the Old Testament as well. So, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about that the church has the power to forgive sins. The church has the power to pray to intercede. But again, different members have different functions. So then, where does this all come from? If you go back to Matthew chapter 9, you'll see the beginnings of this issue. Or some passage that will help you. In Matthew chapter 9, the church is the body of Christ. And so it goes about doing the things that Jesus did. Alright? So if the church is not doing things that Jesus was doing in the first century, while he's on earth, then it's to that degree that the church is not living up to its job and its role as the body of Christ. It's very simple. So if Jesus was going around doing things in the first century, you would expect to see those things manifest in some way in the church. And so in chapter nine, you see, in getting into a boat, he crossed over this, in Matthew nine, over came to his own sitting Behold, They brought to a paralytic lying on his bed and when Jesus saw the faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Right? If you look in the parallel text in Mark, you know, Mark 2 and Luke 5, you hear the words of what they said, this man blasphemes, for who can forgive sins but God alone? And isn't that the issue we're dealing with here? Can forgive sins, but God alone. Isn't this the question? This man's Jesus but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Right? For them it was, well, you we can <laughs> say that, but it doesn't mean anything. Rise and walk. Well, that'll really show me something. But Jesus tried to teach himself. It's more difficult to say your sins are forgiven. He's done the more difficult thing first. But now, because they don't believe his word, he has to show them a sign. A common theme in the gospel, especially in John's gospel. And he says, but, uh, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and the crowd saw it. They were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. That's pretty amazing. Now, you are probably thinking, or some of you and your Protestant awesome friend might be thinking the same thing. They're going to ask you this. Well, of course. What's the big deal? This is Jesus, right? This is the Jesus we're talking about here. Of course he has that power. He's God. And he's also man. Jesus is called by two titles in the Gospels. Almost in every chapter you'll hear these two titles. When when others encounter Jesus, they realize this is the Son of God. But Jesus always refers to himself as the Son of Man. He's not denying that he's the son of God. He's trying to point to a passage out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You don't have to go there. but Where Jesus, where Daniel looks up in the heavens and he sees one like a son of man, approaching the ancient of days and being given all power authority and glory. The whole passage is modeled over uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 7. From a great messianic promise to David. Daniel has a great vision that the Messiah to come is going to be not only a descendant of David, but in a miraculous way, as God said and promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, both the son of David and the son of God. And so Jesus goes around making sure people understand who he is. He is the son of man from David's prophecies. So what Jesus is doing there is pointing to his human nature. And you can see this in the rest of the text. That you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Rise and walk. And the crowd saw it, and they were afraid. And they glorified God. I mean, we can forgive sins, but God loved. They glorified God, who had given such authority to Jesus. that your text? To men. Right? The crowd understood what Jesus said when He said the Son of Man. They realized that somehow, in some mystical, bizarre way, they don't comprehend yet who this Jesus is, but they realize that He's pointed to Himself as the Son of Man. And they realize in some mysterious way that God, beyond their comprehension, has given the power to forgive sins to men on earth in some way. They again, not shout not understand it. Again, he said, well, fine, of course Jesus is God, Jesus is man, of course. And of course they don't understand him. Well, everything that Jesus does on earth in his, in his earthly ministry, he hands that power over to his church. You can see this in Mark 6. He gives them the power to go out and anoint with the oil. And through the anointing of oil, Mark 6, people are raised from the paralysis and raised from the dead. They're going out doing Jesus' things. And Jesus says, You marvel in this? Greater things than these you will do. I've only been here for three years. And even 20,000, or however long the church will the around. Think of what will be accomplished through my body. This power that Jesus has is given over to his apostles in a text in John chapter 20. After the resurrection, Jesus appears in the upper room. John chapter 20, verse is in the notes John chapter 20 verse 19 on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you well that's a nice thing to say we do that at mass shaking hands and stuff right what does it have to do in the text peace be with you he's giving them the power of peace to unite God and man. And he says, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, the, the way in which that peace would come. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. All right? Emphasizing that. What he's about to do is intimate related to peace, reconciliation. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm going to send you kind of. Don't you? <laughs> as the Father sent me, that is just as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on that. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The power that Jesus had on earth in His earthly ministry, He hands over to His church. And it's not that suddenly now the church has the power to forgive sins because Jesus has given it to them and He's just kind of going to sit back and watch. It's not that... Peter has the keys to the kingdom of God because Jesus reached his pocket and grabbed some keys and handed them to him, and then he'll ask for them later on. It's that Peter is being bound into the body of Christ. The apostles are part of the body of Christ. We are, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 6 through 8, his most important baptismal homily. In Romans 6, he says, All of you who were baptized in Christ have died with Christ, have risen with him to newness of life. You're intimately bound into his body. That's what he says in Colossians 2, and those other places we already talked about. So then, Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. Peter, by participation in that body, acts as that part of the member of that body. Jesus is the mediator in God and men who forgive sins. But when we're talking about Jesus, who are we talking about? It's not this diagram that I've laid out here for you. But Ephesus and Timothy are Jesus. By participation in the body of Christ, they continue to do the things that Jesus did. As St. Peter will say in his second epistle, become partakers of the divine nature. If you're part of Jesus' body, you're united to His person, which is united to a divine nature. And through mystically, you have the honor to be the face of Jesus in your community. Full order. Thank God. There's certain parts of the members that have different trust, right? I wouldn't be a very good neck or an ear. or right? So, anyway.